Turn with me to Titus chapter 2 and then to chapter 3, the passage we read earlier, page 1199. I'm conscious that I shouldn't keep you too long today because there's a sporting event that is on people's minds and dominating your thinking. Yes, I know, like me, you're rushing home to watch Germany play Brazil in the final of the Women's World Cup. Um, and I know you're wishing Germany well. Um, no, I believe Ireland are playing today. Um, hopefully things will go better than so far. We come back to Titus, this, this short little book, but this book where, where God has already spoken to us and, and where we believe that he, he is going to to challenge us and encourage us again this morning. So let's, let's pray, asking him to do that. Father God, as we come to your word just now, we admit our total inability to understand what it is that you would say to us. And much less our ability to do it unless you come by your spirit, open our minds and move our wills. Make this word once more a living word to us and make us people whose passion is to obey you and do the things that you say. Amen. Last week in chapter two, we looked at verses one to eight. And in those verses, Paul is talking to the believers in Crete. And he's telling them about how they, how they should behave. He's given specific teaching for men and women, older and younger. And he's focusing very much on relationships among Christians or in the church, if you like. And that's good and very, very important. And I hope, I hope that we would take that on board, that we want to be careful of how we behave when we're here in church. But Paul's encouragement to be a good church is only half the story. You see, for, for all of us, no matter how committed to Jesus Christ we are, no matter how much we give of ourselves in the church, we only ever spend a small proportion of our time in the church. We spend most of our time outside of the church, away from this place, in our workplaces or, or in some other place in public life. And it's important that we recognize that reality. It seems to me that there's another reality that we need to recognize, um, even if it disturbs us. Most of the people whom God has called me and you to reach don't come here. They don't come to church. And they're not going to anytime soon. So if we're going to reach them for Jesus Christ, as we've been called to do, then it's going to take everyday Christians, people like you and me, to go and live dynamically for God elsewhere other than in here, in public life, in our homes, and all those places where God has called us. So whenever Paul is writing to this young pastor, Titus, in Crete, he's not content to leave it with just giving advice for how we live in the church, chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. In chapter 9, or sorry, verse 9 of chapter 2, he now broadens the horizons. 
he begins to think about how Christians might live on Mondays to Saturdays. How they might live outside of the church. Teach slaves, he says, to be subject to their masters in everything. Now, a quick word here on on these slaves that are mentioned in the Bible. This word refers really to anybody who served under the, the master of the household. So you shouldn't think here necessarily of oppressive regimes of um, taskmasters with whips. The term here probably refers to a a large proportion of the congregation, or or, sorry, of the population. Anybody who isn't a a homeowner and a landowner. Uh, And it struck me that our best analogy here is the modern employee. So most of us have worked for a living or are working for a living So whenever Paul talks to slaves, he's talking to people like us when we do our our work, uh, wherever that may be. So you'll see here that Paul has shifted his focus from from good lives inside the church to good lives in the workplace. And he realizes that the workplace is an absolutely key area for Christians to live out the life of Christ now, some of you have had the chance to read Mark Green's fabulous wee book about being a Christian in the workplace. Thank God it's Monday. Here's what he has to say about the workplace. He says, There were very few places where a non-Christian could and should see the difference that Christ makes in a life. So clearly, as in working with someone, 30, 40, or 60 hours a week. Mark Green is passionate to see Christian people live for God in their workplaces. And it seems to me that his concern is totally biblical. And it's one that he shares with the Apostle Paul. So here in verses 9 to 10 of Titus chapter 2, Paul gives some ideas of how a Christian employee can live a good life in their workplace. He says they're to be subject to their masters in everything. I don't think that needs an awful lot of explanation. Um, We're to let the boss be the boss. We're to recognize his or her authority. While While it's pretty clear that we're supposed to do that, I suppose I would want to say that's not easily done. Or certainly not always. Often we find it difficult to work with our bosses and very difficult to respect them. But it seems to me that the biblical command is that even when we find it difficult to respect our boss, God wants us to be under their authority. Now the passage continues here. It says, try to please them. And again, that that can be difficult. It can be difficult sometimes to try and please your boss. If if your boss is a, a corrupt person or if there's a bad atmosphere in your work, it can be hard to rise above that. And to, to really just with a pure heart try to please your, your boss. Paul gives us a perspective that I think helps us. Whenever he's writing to the Colossians and the Ephesians, he says that Christian employees ought to work as if God were their boss. Because he says, in fact, that's true. It is the Lord Christ you're serving So in a sense, we need to just change our perspective slightly. As in every other area of life, 
The most important thing going on is, is what's happening between us and God. So even, even when our boss is almost impossible to live with, we remember that our boss doesn't control our lives. That he or she isn't the ultimate reality. That God stands above and beyond. So we do our best to please God. And when we do that, I, I think it's a natural thing that our bosses are, are pleased by our work. Some of you have been here with us at our evening series where we've been looking together at the life of Joseph. Now, it seems to me that's a, a wonderful example of what Paul's talking about here. Joseph, first of all, when he was a shepherd in his dad's household, uh, when he was a slave working for Potiphar, uh, when he worked for the prison warder under whose authority he was, in each of these th three cases, he showed himself to be a man who, who worked well for his bosses, but you have this sense that he was able to do that because he was working for God. None of those circumstances were ideal. You know, I, I don't have time here to, to reanalyze them just now, but none of them, in fact, they were far from ideal. But somehow, Joseph, under God, managed to live in a way that pleased his bosses. Reading on, Paul says that Christians in the workplace are not to talk back to their bosses. When I read that, I thought, you know, how does Paul know so much about my workplace? The, I, I'm remembering the workplace where I worked before coming into ministry and the, just the, the temptation to chat back to the boss or probably even a greater temptation actually was the one to chat about the boss behind his back. Um, Paul seems to be well aware of these temptations and he says, don't do it. And that's hard, I think, particularly if you're in, a, in an environment or an office where everyone else is doing it. Things like this are quite insidious and they draw you in. And Don't do it, says Paul. And he reminds employees not to steal from their bosses. And again, I think he's being quite perceptive here. If you imagine this, this household economy where these slaves are working, it'd be the easiest thing in the world to lift a jar of olive oil when the delivery comes from the market or, or to take home a, a bag of grain when you've been involved in the harvest. It would be the easiest thing in the world to do it and to justify it. To say to yourself, well, the boss won't miss it. He's so wealthy. It's my family who have so little. And, you know, we can easily make the same, the same mistake in, in modern life. If we work for a big corporation, we wonder what a few pounds here and there of pilfering will, will harm them. Um, it seems to me that probably the most, uh, the most tempting area of theft for us in, in modern working life is time. Um, I don't know, because I've, I've come out of the, that sort of environment since the internet really took off. But it seems to me that probably the modern employee almost regards it as a, a right that they spend a wee bit of time surfing on the internet during the day. I don't know if I'm right about that or not. If we regard that as a right, friends, it's not. When we're under contract with a boss to work for a certain number of hours, then working any less than that amount of time is theft. Whatever way we, 
We like to dress it up. Paul says that Christian people, those who have the life of Christ in them, aren't to do these things. And I think he's right. I think we must all uh, look for the the life of Christ in us to, to manifest itself in integrity in the way we are in our workplaces. Don't talk back to your boss, says Paul, and don't steal from them either. Paul started with those two negative things, and then he, he moves on to a positive. Christian slaves are to show that they can be fully trusted. And in a sense, I think this sums it all up. Sometimes Paul does that. He gives you long lists of do's or don'ts. And, and I always try to encourage a congregation, don't worry too much about every last detail. Take a step back and see what he's getting at. And I think this is it. Are we trustworthy employees? If our boss goes out of the office or if he or she goes overseas on business, are they going with a light heart knowing that they can trust us entirely? Or are they terrified as to what might be going on when they turn their backs? I think that's what an employer would want in an employee, someone whom they can trust. So in this short verse and a half, Paul has has told how Christian employees can live good lives in their workplace. But now he goes on to say, why? That's so important. He says, so that in everything, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Christians in the workplace are to live godly lives so that we make Christ attractive there. And here we have again this recurring theme of this short letter. Uh, Last week when we were in chapter 1 and those first eight verses, we learned about how we are to behave in the church. And and Paul explained there why we must behave in the church. He said that it was so that onlookers couldn't find a bad word to say about us. And I think what we have here is... Is the flip side of that coin. On the one hand, he doesn't want people to have a bad word to say about us, and that's important. But now he gives the positive aspect of that. As well as not having people say a bad word about us, we want to have people attracted, drawn to the life of God because of what they see in us. Whenever Claire and I were engaged in the summer of 1998, uh, it happened about three or four days before I went back to to be in Vancouver in Canada. So we knew that we were going to be apart for the whole of that engagement, about six months. And it wasn't long after I went back to Canada that we were on the phone and we realized that we didn't really fancy spending six months apart just before getting married. So we looked for a way to be together and... We wondered whether Claire should come to Vancouver, and we thought no. We wondered whether I should come home, and we thought no. And in the end, we decided to meet up halfway. So for, I think it was about five or six days, we both flew to New York and met up and had a wonderful five days, um, just enjoying each other's company there in New York. One thing I can remember about that trip was the chance to walk up Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue um, and to see really some of the, the world's fanciest 
and best turned out shops. Uh, it really struck me there that, that a shop window can be an art form. You know, whenever somebody really gives their, their best energy to, to creating a, a beautiful shop window, it can be just a wonderful thing. I began to think a little bit about, about shop windows and how they work. A good shop window, it should be able to draw your attention, even when you're quite preoccupied and, and busily passing by. You're walking down the street, but somehow something happens over here that catches your eye and draws you to it. But it not only does that, it doesn't just draw your attention to the, the whole of the window. It has a, a sort of a focusing energy where a really good display will, will draw your attention in to, to the thing right at the center. The thing that's supposed to be the focus of the whole display. Well, friends, it seems to me that our lives are to be like a shop window. In this frantic and, and hectic world of ours where so many people will, will bump into us and pass us by, our lives are to, to catch the eye and to focus the attention of those who pass us by. And they're to focus the attention on one thing, the gospel of our God and Savior. They're to draw people to Jesus. Look again at the second half of verse 10. Employees are to have such integrity in the workplace that they make the gospel attractive. Now, now this idea of making something attractive here, it comes from the, the Greek word uh, cosmeo. And we get our word cosmetic from that. In, in the early days when the Greeks used this word, they used it to, to display jewels in a way that would show their full beauty. Do you see now how the life of a Christian is, is the, the shop window where the jewel of the gospel is on display. Our lives, yours and mine, are the primary context in which people make decisions about Jesus Christ. They look at us and they ask themselves, is this something I want or not? It could be that we're living a life that gives no evidence of our salvation. That the lighting is poor, the window looks like it hasn't been cleaned in years. And, and the gospel jewel is lost. It's almost invisible entirely. But it may be that, that many of us are, are living lives where there's real and wonderful evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. The window's clean. The display's beautiful and eye-catching. And when that happens, then, then the gospel, the good news about Jesus, it shimmers and it shines like a diamond under bright lights. It's irresistible to people who see it. You see again, friends, how we live as followers of Jesus Christ makes all the difference in how people around us respond to Jesus. That's why Paul urges these employees to, to live good lives in their workplaces. Now I'm conscious that, that many among us here this morning are no longer in the public workplace and I don't want to, to rule anyone out 
of what we've been thinking about here this morning. So we're going to finish with just a couple of minutes on the first two chapters of verse of sorry, the first two verses of chapter three, where Paul urges Titus to preach the um, to his congregation about public life, and that's something that concerns us all. He says, "Remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities." Now, there's a whole world in behind that command, a whole world of complexity. Um, How do you obey authorities when they're corrupt? How, in particular, do Christian people live under regimes that oppose Christianity? Those are all very valid questions, but they're not ones that I'm going to engage with this morning. I suppose I'd put it to you like this. By and large, that's not our experience. So while I might be looking for quick get-out clauses of why I don't need to obey the authorities, the fact of the matter is, living in Britain, I can pay my taxes. I can obey the speed limit. I can obey the law, by and large, without infringing my Christian conscience. I can, and Paul says I'm called to do it. Look up down at chapter 3 and verse 1. The rest of it there. Christians are to be ready to do whatever is good. That's pretty broad. Um, Christians sometimes get a nickname as do-gooders. I think it's a great nickname. I would love to see it enhanced. I'd love to see people saying that of me, that I'm a person who does good. Of course, it, it can come with negative connotations, but the doing good itself is a a very biblical thing to do. Paul says we're to slander no one and we're to be peaceable and considerate. That's interesting. Uh, In an Ulster context, where some of the people who have claimed in the loudest voice to love God have been some of the people who have been quickest to slander, who have been far from peaceable and considerate. Uh, I suppose that's something we'll always struggle with and always want to learn How to be people of conviction and yet people of grace. And only Jesus probably ever got this entirely right. A man of grace and truth. But that's our our desire. We're to show true humility, Paul says, towards all men. And what he's talking about here is a, a total package. Paul says we're to show, in the original Greek, he says we're to show all gentleness to all people. He says, think of of the completest level of humility and gentleness you could show. Well, show that and show it to all people. I wonder if we're we're sometimes a wee bit choosy about who we, we show dignity and courtesy to. Is it possible that we have a sort of a social ladder in our head and that everybody above a certain rung gets a, a respectful um, and courteous approach from us. But there are some people, maybe by, by dint of their, their education or, or the job that they do, we think it's okay to treat them less. Paul says, show true humility to all men. What about the lady on the checkout in Tesco or Sainsbury? We treat her with dignity. That's the call. That's the test.
Paul has been urging us in these, these early verses of chapter 3 to live good public lives. I suppose the, the modern word for it is citizenship. In our relationships with all people, we're to be courteous, humble, and gentle, regardless of their race, religion, or politics. Um, we're to, to submit to our government and authorities. If this sounds blatantly obvious, if it sounds like it's stuff that we should already know, that's good. Because Paul knows that. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, Titus, remind them. It does no harm to be reminded from time to time of the things that we already know. I trust God's word has served as a reminder to us this morning. Joe was converted at a drop-in center for alcoholics. Until he found Jesus Christ, his life was a bit of a a car crash of an experience. He lived on park benches. He he seemed to be set on a path of self-destruction. But after his conversion to Christ, he he did find a a wonderful new life. Joe stayed on at the drop-in center, this time not uh, as one of the, the clients, but as somebody who was serving and helping there. And he became the most caring person that anyone at the drop-in center had ever seen. He spent his days and his nights at the center doing the kind of jobs that nobody else wanted to do. Going in, cleaning up the toilets at the end of a rough night. Cleaning up the vomits and worse on the, the filthy floors. He seemed to be genuinely glad of the chance to to help anyone whom God sent on it, across his path. Uh, and these, these tragic men in particular, feeding them, undressing them, putting them to bed whenever they were too out of it to take care of themselves. One night, the director at the drop-in center was uh, giving an evangelistic address, as he often did. And the, the crowd gathered there, looked as they often did, down, heads down, uh, most of them entirely out of it or, or nearly. But in the middle of the address that he was giving, out of the blue, a man got up, ran down the aisle and, and came down on his knees and began to pray. And over and over again, he kept shouting. He kept repeating one thing. Oh God, make me like Joe. Make me like Joe. Make me like Joe. And the guy who was preaching at the time hadn't really heard anything like this ever before. And he he was pretty uneasy about it. And he he whispered down to the guy, listen son, should you not be saying make me like Jesus? And at that the the half drunk man was only able to ask a question confused. Is he like Joe? Friends, a lot of people known to us don't know Jesus Christ. They don't even know where to begin with him. In a sense, we all need to be like like this Joe in this story. We need to be people who in some ways are attractive ourselves. Because Jesus is in us. Because his spirit's visible there. How can people be attracted to Jesus while we who take the name of Jesus don't attract? 
Paul has urged Titus. He said, teach these people in Crete how to live. Why? So that the gospel, the good news of our Savior, might become attractive. What a wonderful prayer for us to pray here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. That God will make something beautiful of us. That others will see it and find Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, it's one of those moments in your word where we we feel out of our depth. We're not even sure that this is possible. That we could make the gospel attractive by how we live. But Lord, we want to take you at your word this morning. We want to believe that as your spirit comes on us, as you move in our lives, as you change us, that the beauty of the gospel, of what you've done in us, would be there for others to see. Lord, we want to pray a bold prayer this morning. We pray that people will come into the kingdom of God because of what they see in us, in this congregation, this church fellowship. Lord, would you do that so that you would have all the glory? We pray it in Jesus' name.